Okay, and we are live. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I am excited to introduce my special guest to you. His name is Dr. Ben Arbor, and he has told me to call him Ben. So, Ben, please uh, give us a—first of all, thank you so much for— uh, taking the time out of your day to do this, I really appreciate it. This is one of those. Oh, topics. thank you for having. Me. This yeah. is this is really exciting for me. I'm glad yeah. to be here. Thank you. Uh, this uh, subject today, the ontological argument, is one that I'm not all that familiar with. It's not something I've studied a lot, and so I am excited to uh, hear a little bit uh, more about it from from yourself. But before we do that, uh, if you don't mind, just briefly uh, introducing yourself and kind of uh, what you do. Uh, sure. So <clears throat> my name is Ben Arbor. Um, Probably the important stuff about me first, I guess. Uh, I became a Christian in college. Um, although I was raised in a in a Christian home, we went to church on Sundays. Um, just didn't really take, I guess you might say. But uh, I had a really significant religious experience um, my junior year at Texas A&M, where I did my undergrad. Um, it's also a little bit after I met my wife. We were dating at the time, so I'm married. We have four kids. I live here in Fort Worth, Texas, and um, I'm really interested in philosophy of religion and analytic metaphysics. And most of my most of my um, academic work focuses on the intersection of, of those two ideas. So, yeah, thank you. So I got a, a fellow Texan on the show. It has been a while since I had a fellow Texan on the show. I went to A and M. Won't hold that against you. No, I'm just kidding. But I lived uh, out in. <laughs> West Texas in Lubbock, so I'm a bit of a Texas Tech fan. I say that I really don't watch that much sports, but I lived out there, so I guess that's my thing. Well, no but, one's watching any sports these days. That that's true. We're not watching sports right now, unfortunately. Um, but uh, okay, so you said you became a Christian in college. Um, yeah. How did how did you get interested in say the philosophy of religion or just philosophy more broadly? Yeah, um, that's that's interesting. Uh, I was not a particularly good student um, in high school or really even in college. Um, I didn't see a lot of value in it. I, I, everything just seemed to me instrumental. I need to do this in order to check the box so that I can get a job and yada, yada, yada. Um, <clears throat> after my conversion, I really took an interest in theology, you might say. I saw that it really mattered and uh, seemed to really help my faith, not just from an intellectual standpoint, but from even a devotional standpoint, um, getting to getting to know God. And I was being discipled by some people um, at the time who were really helpful to me. One guy who was just finishing a master's degree at uh, seminary, and he was just you know really helping me learn what it is to to be a Christian and how to walk with the Lord. Um, after I graduated. Uh, we, he ended up becoming the pastor of a church or one of the pastors of a church that my wife and I attended for a while. And over a period of a couple of years, he really encouraged me by just saying, look, you like to read all this stuff. If you're interested in it, you've got the mind for it if you want to go to seminary and study this. So I made the decision to uh, pursue a seminary education. It was a master's of divinity. Um, at that time, I was really interested in biblical theology, so my concentration was in biblical languages and, and New Testament and Old Testament theology. Um, and I'm, I was very privileged to get to study with some really, really brilliant theologians, uh, New Testament theologian um, <clears throat> Howard Marshall, um, I. Howard Marshall, as he's published 
and an uh, Old Testament theologian named Eugene Merrill, who teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary. But during the course of my MDiv, which is a, a big 90-hour graduate program, um, I really developed an interest in Christian apologetics, and even more than apologetics, just philosophical reasoning, thinking really, really hard about theological concepts. So I took several courses um, in philosophical theology and philosophy of religion, ethics, um, apologetics. I took a, a course on the problem of evil and a special course on open theism, and that really solidified, man, this is this is the kind of theology that I'm most interested in personally. I'm really thankful that there are scholars who continue to dig into the hardcore exegesis of uh, Greek and Hebrew and some of the biblical study stuff. Um, and I think it's really important that Christian theologians make use of that. Um, it's not really what I feel like I'm supposed to be doing directly all the time, although I, I still dabble in my fair share of Hebrew and Greek, but certainly not to the level of those superheroes. So I would uh, prefer <clears throat> to take the fruits of what those guys are doing along with the fruits of really good historical theology, along with uh, the rigorous studies of academic philosophy, be it epistemology or ethics or especially metaphysics, throw all of that stuff up in a blender. And uh, yeah, so that's that's what I'm really interested in. Yeah. yeah, I find it interesting what you said because I've, I've found it to be kind of a common theme, um, which kind of goes against the uh, cliches that you hear about Christians out there as far as like uh, religion being against knowledge and against science and this sort of stuff. But whenever I became a Christian, I was just, it was very similar to what you said. Whereas before, I didn't care at all about uh, knowledge in general, whether it be philosophical or science or whatever. I was a, I was a pretty good student because I knew how to pass the tests, but mm. I didn't, I wasn't actually getting any knowledge and I didn't really care to have any of it. Cause like you said, it all just really se seemed to be about passing tests so that eventually I can have a piece of paper and this piece of paper will give me a good job so I can have a good salary. But I wasn't interested in knowledge say per se, like for the sake of itself. Yeah. But once I became a Christian, all of a sudden, and I don't know why, my desires just pretty much changed almost overnight. Now I want to read. Now I just want to know. And it started, like you said, with knowing about the Bible, knowing about God. But it really just branched out from there where now I'm interested in knowing things about uh, whether they be philosophical or scientific or whatever. It's just... I don't know what it is about that. Do you have any theory? But like, I, cause I really could not have cared less before becoming a Christian, but then becoming a Christian now, all of a sudden I want to know, I don't know. Um, I definitely think that the kind of transformation that you're describing happens often and it doesn't necessarily happen to everybody, but, it, uh, the prophet Ezekiel says that, uh, that God will remove from us a heart of stone and put within us a heart of flesh, a heart to know him and that he would be our God and we would be his people. Um, and I, Jesus says you must be born again, right? So there's this transformative experience of, of being born from above. Uh, and I think that when that happens to people, it really radically transforms them in very significant ways. And so I, that's what happened to me seems uh, from your testimony that that's what's happened to you. Um, 
when when some people came to Jesus and asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He repeated the Shema, Mm -hmm. right? That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And it's sad to me that in so many parts of the evangelical realm of Christianity, we seem to have uh, really discounted the importance of loving God with all your mind. Um, But as people continue to ride the coattails of the renaissance of Christian philosophy that seems to have taken place over the last 30 or 40 years, more and more people in the evangelical world are awakening to the importance of really thinking hard about um, all manner of issues, not not just issues in philosophy, but issues in uh, the relationship between science and religion or uh, biblical theology or history or, or just just the importance of being a good thinker as a Christian, whether you're a philosopher or an attorney or a doctor or a plumber or a electrician or a car salesman or whatever, just loving God with all your mind is not something that we get to uh, check at the door. That's a commandment. And, and we strive to obey that commandment to please and honor our heavenly father. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of a digression there, but it was it was worth it because that, that's just something I always notice. But uh, let's move into the topic of today's discussion, which is sure. uh, the ontological argument for the existence of God. And even that right there is a bit misleading. Um, but if um, I thought it might be helpful to talk a little bit about the history of the ontological argument and uh, which version it is that you like to defend, because uh, I know that there are multiple versions. Yeah, so... Um that's astute that you recognize that there's not just one ontological argument, but there's this family of arguments that all bear the name ontological arguments. Um, <clears throat> the ontological argument, as people conceive of it now, seems to have been discovered by St. Anselm, and he wrote about this in, in a little small book called The Proslogion. And there are... Lots and lots of debates about Anselm's argument, the ontological argument, whether or not there's one or two or perhaps even three different kinds of ontological arguments in Anselm. Now, it's worth pointing out that Anselm's argument is written in the form of a prayer. So Anselm is recording his own thoughts about God as he is praying to God which I think is important for understanding what Anselm is trying to do. So let me put this on the table. This is going to be an important distinction. It's one thing to debate about the proper exegesis of Anselm and what is Anselm's intent and what is he trying to do. It's another thing to abstract some of the ideas that Anselm gives us and talk about those, regardless of whether or not it was Anselm's original intent. So there are there are some people, uh, and I would fall into this category, who are doubtful that what Anselm was attempting to do was provide a piece of natural theology divorced from the life of the church or special revelation or anything like that. Um, however, it doesn't follow from the fact that Anselm wasn't necessarily trying to give us this armchair proof for the existence of God, that the ideas might not be appropriated in that way. So let me try to define just a couple of the terms that I just used. Uh, 
When we talk about um, natural theology, what we mean are, are there any arguments for the existence of God that don't depend upon the citation of any biblical references from either the Old Testament or the New Testament? Um, Those would be appeals to special revelation, whereas natural theology is just going to make use of things uh, in the world that we could look at and say, look, those mountains are there. Where did they come from? Uh, Oh, well, they couldn't have been around forever, so something must have made them. What could have made them? Well, it must have been something really powerful. So whatever the cause of those, and this is a a very weak and and, uh, short shrift version of something like a cosmological argument, right? Um, Ontological arguments are offered by philosophers as supposed proofs of the existence of God that, number one, don't depend on any kind of um, special revelation, like appeals to the Bible or appeals to some religious tradition. But in addition to not depending on special revelation, ontological arguments are often described as relying only on a priori reasoning as opposed to a posteriori reasoning where any a posteriori reasoning is going to involve reflections on the world and experiences and uh, empirical data. A priori reasoning is supposed to not depend on any of those um, experiences and instead be thought of as merely depending on uh, your own mental thinking, the laws of logic, the relationships between ideas not necessarily anything that's physical, um, like a cosmological argument or fine-tuning arguments or uh, etc. Now, some people think that moral arguments for the existence of God might also count as a priori arguments. Some people disagree. They think that our understanding of morality is necessarily experiential. But ontological arguments, at least as they are understood as such, are generally described as a priori arguments. And that's what I mean when I talk about an armchair proof. Um, armchair proofs are things that you know, would constitute a proof for the existence of God that you could figure out just sitting in a chair and just thinking about it, right. as opposed to proofs that require you to uh, understand the nature of causation and understand the nature of the world around you. Um, now, <clears throat> with all that as a background, we can turn our attention towards what exactly the ontological argument is supposed to be. The ontological argument begins by saying, let's think about the concept of what God would be if there is a God. We're not, we're not answering, is there a God or is there not a God? It's just, if there were a God, what would God be? And the, the central intuition of ontological arguments is that God must be whatever it's greater to be than to not be. Um, <clears throat> now, we're going to label that perfect being theology, that, that there is some kind of a hierarchy of being, there's some kind of a totem pole, and God is the one who's the highest spot on that totem pole. God is the uh, highest thing on the food chain, and in the great chain of being, God is going to be whatever is the top, and, and it's not possible for there to be anything greater than God. Because if it was possible for anything to be greater than God, well, then that thing would be God by definition, because God is 
that than which nothing greater can be. Um, that might be a good place for us just to pause and if yeah. you have any questions about well, that. Well, I was going to have a question, but I think it kind of got answered. And Because one of the, I think the question that people would have would be, well, why suppose that there is some totem pole of which there, there is a highest, there's a top of the food chain, so to speak. Why, why suppose that there even is such an order? Um, yeah. Right. So um, this is a question of what's sometimes called value commensurability versus value incommensurability. Um, and I think that we have very good reason to think that at least some things are value commensurable. And what I mean by that is we can take object A and object B and compare them one against the other and determine which one is more valuable, right? Okay. So if I scribble a little uh, stick man on a piece of paper and sign it and say, this is a priceless work of art and offer that to you, or alternatively, um, you can have this original Rembrandt uh, which one would you like? I mean, yeah. I think everyone's going to say those are value commensurable. We want the Rembrandt. Maybe that's because you think it's monetarily valuable, uh, or maybe it's because you think there's this great intrinsic value to art that is completely independent of the monetary value. Either way, we would say that my little drawing of the stick man and the Rembrandt painting, these are value commensurable. We can compare them, right? Mm -hmm. Now, it gets trickier when you take things that are not alike, and now you say, I will offer you the, um, the Rembrandt painting, or I will offer you a special potion that will allow you to live for 1,000 years, right? Um, man, which one of those is more valuable, and how do you evaluate this, and how do I figure that out? Um, well, it's tricky. But Yujin Nagasawa, who's a, a philosopher who teaches at the University of Birmingham in England, has defended the idea that all things are value commensurable. Um, there's another philosopher, and um, he's written a, a book relatively recently on the intrinsic value of everything, saying that everything that exists has some measure of value in it. And uh, I think that that it's pretty clear that even things that are not identical or even of the same kind can be evaluated. For instance, everyone knows that dogs are way better than cats. I mean, everyone knows this. Um, anyone who disagrees just clearly is not thinking clearly about this because I, I would concur. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, ha ha ha. Of course I'm, I'm joking. Although I am a dog person and not a cat person. Um, but when it comes to the great chain of being with respect to God, there are things that are kind of definitional about this. And um, again, we're trying to do philosophy right now. Um, ontological arguments are supposed to be natural theology, but I do think that we can find scriptural support for the idea that there's some kind of a chain of being. Um, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews describes the incarnation and says that um, he was made a little lower than the angels. So it seems that you have this coming down from on high, that you have God becoming incarnate in, the, in a man, right? So mankind seems to be ontologically less than angels, and angels are clearly ontologically less than God, um, not least because both angels and mankind depend for their very existence upon God. 
but maybe there's some other ontological reason that's not just dependence, but um, overall greatness. Uh, and so I, I'm I'm pretty happy with those intuitions. Um, the, they don't strike me as being um, overly objectionable. Um, I mean, is it, is it all right if I try to repeat back to you what I'm hearing? Just uh, because if I'm not tracking, then probably there's going to be audience members who aren't. Absolutely. Um, it, it seems that there's an order of being in the world. Obviously, you have inanimate objects, you have plants, you have animals, you have human beings. And if you want to postulate something like angels that would be higher than human beings, and then and then you're and then there's there's God for those who believe in God. But right. if, even if you don't believe in God and angels, there's still uh, right now at least maybe at the end of the argument you will. But even if you don't believe in that right now, you would probably agree that there's an order of being. Um, and is me classifying like inanimate objects, plants, animals, humans? Is that the same order you're talking about, or are you talking about something different? Yeah, so uh, this term order that you're using uh, is a little different than what some philosophers would want to call the hierarchy of being, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the order of being is fine. The reason that it's a little tricky is because there's different ways to describe the order of being, right? So on one order of being, I am greater than my children because they are dependent on me causally, right? Because okay. if I did not exist, then they would not exist. But I don't believe that um, my life or, or me as a person is intrinsically more valuable than any of their lives or your life or uh, any other human being's life. So when we talk about orders of being, we just want to be real careful whether we're talking about some kind of a causal order or what the relation is here. Is it a dependence claim? Is it a causal claim? Or, or is it a value claim? So what's, what's really interesting here in the hierarchy of being has to do with a value claim. Oh, okay. And saying that that certain beings are more valuable than others. Um, now, there's danger here, right? Because um, certain people have used this kind of thinking in in really reprehensible ways by trying to suggest that one group of people is more valuable than another group of people. But um, there are constraints that I'm putting on this, at least for our discussion, that with respect to human anthropology. Um, all humans would be equally valuable, right? Um, it doesn't follow from the fact that some equality standard across one kind, like humanity, that humans have the same value as rocks, right? Um, unless we want to adopt the theory of panpsychism, where everything is conscious, uh, and I, I'm not a panpsychist, then it seems that certain animals are enjoy consciousness and inanimate objects are not conscious if you think consciousness is a good and valuable thing then maybe that's going to contribute to the overall greatness of say uh, a human person that would lead you to the conclusion we should value the lives of human people more than we value the lives of rocks um, or I mean I'm using the term life of rocks right. euphemistically because I don't think rocks are alive um, but yeah so then you extrapolate from rocks to humans, however more valuable you think that a human is in comparison to a rock, the claim is that God, if God were to exist, would would be that much more valuable than both the rock and the human in virtue of being God. Okay. Um, okay. I don't know if you want to continue the argument. Uh, yeah. Um, let's see. So God is the most, uh, is being defined as the most valuable being. 
uh, yeah, the, whatever the whatever greatness is, whatever great making features are, whatever perfection is, um, God is better. What it, whatever it's better to be than to not be. Um, okay, so there, you're not saying that um, in order for God to be the greatest being, that it's necessarily the case that He's omniscient, omnipotent, uh, omnibenevolent. It's just whatever is maximally great. That's God. Yeah, so um, that's really important, and I want to get to a discussion of that issue, um, but not just yet. Okay. okay. Sure, sure. I'll be quiet, um, and I'll let you take the argument. Uh, just kind of. Uh, sure, yeah. I, I think we're we're getting close to being able to turn the corner and take up those sure. issues, but the the insights of what is now called Anselmian perfect being theology, and the way that that functions in Anselm's ontological arguments, are not unique to Anselm. Um, there's an important Christian philosopher named Ed Wieringa, who uh, is retired now, but uh, he taught at the University of Rochester in New York for a long time. And he published an article several years ago um, that traces the ideas of Anselmian perfect being theology at least as far back as Augustine. So now we're talking about the 5th century as opposed to the 11th century. So this is not a, a novel development that wasn't present in uh, early Christian thinking. Right. Um, anyway, so suppose that something like perfect being theology is the right way to think about God. God is whatever it's better to be than to not be. Um, perhaps you agree that there are certain attributes that contribute to the overall greatness of, of some being. We, we think about this not in terms of ontological value, but just in terms of uh, instrumental value in people, right? Uh, intelligence is valued, power is valued, um, moral perfections are, are valued, the virtuous person we, we tend to think more highly of than we do, vicious people, um, super smart people who have the ability to, um, you know, find cures to COVID-19. We, we really would value those people right now. Um, as opposed to people, you know, like like me who just aren't that smart and you can't do that kind of stuff. People um, like us who are just sitting here talking about high and lofty philosophical questions. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, you know, or take uh, I'm a baseball guy, so um, look, Mike Trout is a better baseball player than uh, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, you got Rugnado Dor behind you there. Um, uh -huh. Uh, he, you know his arms are missing, so he can't punch anybody. Wherever he is, which way is he? Oh, way. Yeah, I'm glad you took those away from him because uh, yeah, I don't I don't think yeah. he'd win in a fight with Mike Trout, but maybe. Um, well, let's hope we never have to find out. But uh, <laughs> anyway, th th there are ways that you would just construe greatness um, there, and uh, that's going to contribute to um, to just however we would want to quantify greatness. And the idea is that if God is whatever it is better to be than to not be, then let's take some index like power, right? Um, now, suppose that we were going to talk about power as a scale, on a, on a scale of 1 to 10, right? Where 0 is, is you have no power at all, and 10 is maximal power. Um, we would call maximum power omnipotence, right? Um, All-powerful. Right. All so if it's better to be all-powerful than to not be all-powerful, and God is whatever it's better to be than to not be, then God is all-powerful. And you do the same thing for knowledge. Uh, if it's better to be omniscient than it is to only be semi, 
uh, semi-scientia, what would that be? You know, just partially knowing, then God would be all-knowing. And the same thing for moral perfection, right? If if uh, there's the potential for moral imperfection that is inferior to no potential for uh, moral imperfection, so God would have to be morally perfect and not even have the possibility of sinning uh, or something like that. So then you combine all those up, and it turns out you get a God who's omnipotent, omniscient, and um, and morally perfect. Well, how, what does this have to do with like any idea of whether or not that kind of a God exists? Because remember, that's what we're really trying to do here is offer proof for the existence of this kind of a God. Well, the idea has to do with uh, different modes of existing, right? So there are certain um, certain things that we could talk about that seem to exist in our mind, but don't necessarily exist as concrete particulars in the real world. So uh, take Harry Potter, for example, right? Um, Harry Potter exists in your mind, but uh, I don't think that he exists in the same way that you and I do with respect to being able to physically touch him or have a conversation with him and he responds back in conversation. Um, now, I, I hold to a really kind of uh, minority report view about realism concerning fictional beings that's based on um, my own views of, of what truth is and how truth supervenes upon being. So I can speak truthfully about Harry Potter. I can say Harry Potter wears glasses, and that's a true statement. Well, in order for it to be a true statement, there has to be something that exists for the truth to supervene upon, and maybe that's the proposition Harry Potter wears glasses, but that proposition has to make sense out of some reality. So maybe it makes sense out of some reality of the world of Hogwarts. Um, or, or maybe we could follow the philosophy of Alexis Meinong and think that, um, that there are some things that um, there are things that don't exist, but there are, right? Well, so that's a positive claim about non-existent things. So it gets tricky on how we how we deal with this. So, I, I mean, I want to say Harry Potter does exist. He at least exists in our minds, but that's not the same kind of existence that you and I have, right? And here we are talking about God, and we've been able to kind of reason about what God might be like, and he would have to be a, a maximally great being, uh, whatever it's better to be than to not be. But maybe that being just exists in our minds um, and doesn't exist in reality. But he has to exist at least in our minds, because here we are talking about it. We seem to understand these concepts right. um, that God is whatever it's better to be than not be. And now we need to ask ourselves a question about a mode of existence. Would it be better just to exist in the mind or would it would it be better to exist like actually and really? And Anselm's insight was that, well, obviously it's better to exist in reality than to only exist in the mind. And since God is whatever it's better to be than to not be, then God must exist of reality and not mere. Uh, yeah, sorry. That's it. Yeah, is it all right if I have a question there? Are you basically just going to have to appeal to uh, intuition whenever you say, obviously, it's better to exist in reality than in the mind? Um, or is there some standard? Because whenever you use words like better, it seems like there's some standard of which we can look and say, uh, yes, it is. It is better. 
uh, according to the standard, to exist in reality than in the mind. Um, I don't really know what that would be. I mean, I'm not against, you know, some things are just intuitive, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, at least for Anselm's argument, I'm inclined to say yes. Um, in other articulations of the ontological argument, I think that there are responses to get around just the drive to intuition. Um, so, um, okay. Maybe we'll get there. So w just a couple of other quick things about Anselm's argument. Um, Anselm describes God as the being than which none greater can be conceived. So it's, it's all about the way that we think about God, the way that we reason about God, um, and it's in our heads, right? The being than which none greater can be conceived. Um, in the 20th century, as I mean, there, there's a long history of ontological arguments that goes from Anselm to um, Thomas Aquinas, and he ultimately rejected ontological arguments. Right. Other medieval scholastics took them up. Rene Descartes has ontological arguments. Baruch Spinoza has ontological arguments. Immanuel Kant considered uh, ontological arguments. Um, in the 20th century, we get a turn away from conceivability. Okay? So we're no longer describing God as the being than which none greater can be conceived, which makes it about us and our faculties to be able to conceive or think about things rightly. And you begin to get what are described as modal ontological arguments, that God is no longer thought of as the being than which none greater can be conceived. Instead, we describe God as the being than which none greater can be, period. So we're talking about being, not being conceived. Um, and I think that there are some ways that we can um, describe God's existence there uh, in modal ontological arguments where it's superior to exist of necessity than to not exist of necessity. Um, and, and that's not just ultimately going to be driven by intuition claims. There, there are going to be other philosophical things that work there. But maybe we'll get there and just... just are you still there? I want to pause. Are you still there, Dr. Arbor? Hello? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, the Skype was... Okay, I think I got you now. Okay, you there, there we go. Yeah. Yep, I think we're back. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh. uh, okay, so now we're moving uh, from the yeah, uh, uh, Anselmium ontological argument into the uh, modal ontological argument before by Alvin Plantinga. And um, sure. perhaps perhaps a little bit of uh, background on what modality is and possible world semantics and stuff might be helpful. Yeah, very good. Um, but I, in order to describe that, I think I want to go back just a little further sure. and talk yeah, about Immanuel Kant. Oh, yeah. So Immanuel Kant, super famous German philosopher, um, thought that he had like a, just a, a decided and definitive refutation of ontological arguments um, by saying that existence is not a predicate. So you can't describe um, existence 
as as a thing that contributes to the overall greatness of any being, right? Um, and that seems to be, according to his reading, what Anselm is trying to do is, here's this being that is in my mind, um, but here's this being that actually exists. Well, the being that actually exists is greater than the being that I am only able to think about in my mind. So existence contributes to the overall greatness of a being. But Kant says, wait a minute, existence, it's not a predicate. It does, you can't you can't attribute um, that you, you're not describing anything by adding to it. If I say, okay, there's this giant purple elephant outside. It weighs two tons. Uh, it lives in my backyard. Oh, and by the way, it exists, right? Adding existence doesn't add anything to what I'm describing that wasn't already there um, by describing the giant three-ton purple elephant that lives in my backyard. Um, well, modal ontological arguments change this, and um, they do so by looking at what we call the metaphysics of modality. Modality as a subdiscipline of philosophy and a, and a very important part of systematic metaphysics has to do with the study of necessity or contingency or possibility or impossibility um, and how we understand what it is that makes something either true of necessity or absolutely impossible or contingently true, possibly true, um, and and the relationship between a lot of those different ideas, right? So um, just a couple of quick examples that I think are non-controversial. The statement that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is something that we say is necessarily true. It could not have been otherwise. Now, what we mean when we say that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is necessarily true has to do with the ideas that stand behind the numeric tokens that we give them. So um, as the English language evolved, it could have been that instead of calling two, two, we, we could have called it three. Right. And, but we could have kept four meaning four, in which case three plus three would equal four. Hmm. But what we mean by that is that there's this symbol that either we're talking about the number two or the number three, and it points to the concept that's behind those things and whatever that concept is, when you add that to itself, you get the concept that we mean by four, right? right? So the linguistic issues are not important. It's the conceptual analyses that we have here. Yeah. And uh, you know, mathematics seems to follow law-like regularity. So we want to say that uh, it's not possible that two plus two could have equaled five or 17 or whatever. It's necessarily true that two plus two equals four. It could not have been otherwise. Now compare that against something like, you know, I had a cup of coffee this morning. Um, it, presumably, unless some kind of a, a hardcore determinism is true, wow. presumably I could have not had a cup of coffee this morning. Uh, here are a couple of ways that could have happened. Maybe I made a free decision to not drink a cup of coffee. Um, maybe um, I wasn't feeling well, so I stayed in bed. Uh, I could have gotten sick. Uh, or, or maybe I don't even exist at all because my mom and my dad never met each other uh, or something like that. Um, those all seem to describe states of affairs that we tend to think probably could have happened, 
um, in which case I don't drink a cup of coffee this morning. So if that analysis is right, then we want to say that my drinking coffee this morning is contingently true. It could have been otherwise. It's not a necessary truth in the way that um, there's no such thing as a married bachelor. Like we want to say that that's just definitionally true. It's an analytic statement. Okay, what's all any of this stuff got to do with God? Well, in the latter half of the 20th century, there were massive developments in the metaphysics of modality, and we learned to describe things as possible worlds. So with respect to um, the coffee, there are two different world types. There are worlds in which I drink the coffee, and there are worlds in which I refrain from drinking the coffee. Now, some of the worlds in which I refrain from drinking the coffee are because I don't exist, right? Um, but there are other worlds in which I refrain from drinking the coffee and I do exist. So these are world types. Think of these as two different genus, and then the species are lots of underneath, or, or so there's going to be different uh, ways of analyzing that. Um, but when it comes to how to describe things, um, there are these descriptions of possible worlds, and there are some things that are true in all possible worlds, like two plus two equals four. There are no possible worlds in which two plus two equals seven, right? We would say those are impossible worlds because they contain a logical contradiction of some kind. So in all of the possible worlds, we should ask, is it possible that God exists in any of those worlds? And if we say no, it's not possible that God exists, then the conversation's over, okay? Right. Um, and and that's fine. Proof, no. there, there are plenty of people who don't think it's possible for God to exist, right? Um, they, it's not just contingently true that God does not exist. These atheists say God doesn't exist, period. It's impossible for God to exist. There's something in the very idea of God that they find to be a, a logical contradiction or something. Maybe we'll get there in a few minutes. But there are other people like me who say it is impossible that God could fail to exist, right? So if it's true in all possible worlds that God exists, it's certainly possible that God exists. Because if it's possible that God exists, all that we're making a claim for there, a, a modal claim, is that there exists at least one possible world and in that possible world, God exists, right? And if you think God exists in all possible worlds, then it's certainly not a problem to say that he exists in at least one possible world, right? Right. Um, but then we need to analyze the idea here. If we want to say that there is at least one possible world in which a maximally great being exists, well... It sure seems like a maximally great being, if it's truly maximally great, wouldn't just exist in one world, but would instead exist of all worlds. A truly maximally great being couldn't fail to exist. Um, so if that's true, if there's one world where a maximally great being exists, in virtue of its maximal greatness, that being would exist in all possible worlds, making it a necessary being. Mm -hmm. Now, if it's a necessary being then it's true that that being exists not not just in all possible worlds in the abstract sense, but 
whatever world we live in, you and I, the actual world, if God exists at all possible worlds, then he exists at this possible world. And therefore, we can conclude that God exists in reality and not just uh, conceptually. So that's the way that a modal ontological argument would work. Um, there are some additional steps involved, but one important part of this um, is going to go back to something that you raised about intuition, right? Right. That's what I was going to say here. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so what's your question there? No, it's it's probably what, exactly what you were about to address, which was just like in the uh, Anselmian argument, uh, where it was, uh, why would it be greater to exist in reality as opposed to just in the mind? Uh, are we basically going to have to appeal to intuition here, or is there actually some objective standard that says, no, it is greater? So just like in that argument, we're now going to have to say, um, would you say, why, uh, why, is it, why is it greater to exist in not just some possible world, but all possible worlds? And, and is there an right. actual standard for why that would be greater? Very good. So I'm going to say this um, just to clarify some things. I'm not denying that there are certain intuitions that are driving my thinking here, but I am going to appeal to some other uh, motivations for my intuitions, if you will, that are not just, well, it seems like it to me, right? right. Um, I do think there are good reasons for thinking this, but even some of the good reasons that I'm about to point to, some people are going to find controversial, right? But if the standard of a successful philosophical argument is that there's nothing controversial, then there are no successful philosophical concepts, period. Not for anything. Not for God, not for metaphysics, not for epistemology, not for anything. Because if we just want to be skeptics all the way down, then there's always going to be something that's controversial. You can always find at least one philosopher who's that weird person, and um, he doesn't agree with this. Or she thinks that so-and-so is wrong about everything. And so I, I just want to put, as a standard of a successful philosophical argument, something like people who actually know what's going on in the argument and understand it um, can follow along and should be persuaded by it unless they have good reasons to doubt the premises and can explain why they doubt the premises, right? Um, so maybe that's what I think. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out. I've been significantly influenced on what a counts as a good or not good philosophical argument by uh, philosophers like Dave Alexander and Peter Van Inwagen and Tyron Goldschmidt. Um, so I'm, I'm still coming through that. But okay, but with respect to modal ontological arguments, here's one reason why um, it makes sense to think that a being that exists at, at all possible worlds is superior to a being that exists only at some possible worlds, okay? okay. Um, so let's, let's put three terms on table. A being that exists at all possible worlds is a necessary being. Right. A being that exists at zero possible worlds is an impossible being. Mm -hmm. That's the opposite of a necessary being. Um, a being that exists at some, but not all possible worlds, is a contingent being. Now, if we would say that God exists at some, but not all possible worlds, well, let's back up. If we say that God exists at no possible worlds, then we're atheists, and the conversation's over, and there's nothing else. <laughs> yeah. 
But we need to explain like, well, why would you think that, right? And maybe you'd say, well, I think that there's a contradiction between in, in the very notion of God. Okay, fine. That's worth talking about. We'd explore that. Um, and there seem to be at least three different arguments so, to that type. And maybe we'll have time to get there. But Yuji Nagasawa... Briefly, yeah, we're just real brief. We don't have to actually address this because it's been addressed a thousand times. But it, a person who's going to go this route is going to say that God's omnipotence is logically uh, contradictory of his... Uh, omnibenevolence or something like that. If he was really all-powerful, exactly. then yeah. there wouldn't so, be... The so, objection of the problem of evil, for example, the logical problem of evil right. would be an example. So, yeah, since, since you brought it up, I'm just going to explain these these three types. And I owe this taxonomy to Eugen Nagasawa, who um, has, has articulated what he calls A-type and B-type and C-type arguments. So an A-type argument against theism purports to show the incoherence of any single divine attribute. So famously, the paradox of the stone is supposed to show that an omnipotent being is impossible right. because an omnipotent being can create a stone of any size, right? Um, and and if, if an omnipotent being can create a stone of any size, then potentially an omnipotent being can create a stone that's so heavy that that same omnipotent being couldn't pick it up, right? right? Okay. Well, if, if God can create a rock so heavy that God can't lift it, then there's something that God can't do. That is, God can't pick up the rock. If God cannot create a rock that's so heavy that God cannot lift it, well, then there's something that God can't do, namely create a rock so heavy that he can't lift it. In either case, there's something that God can't do. Therefore, uh, God cannot be omnipotent. Or so the argument goes, right? I'm not going to respond to that argument. There's plenty of responses. I don't think it's a, a successful argument against omnipotence. But that's an A-type argument. Sure. A B-type argument doesn't look at a single divine attribute and instead looks at two. So you brought up omnipotence, a being can do anything, and a morally perfect being is one who cannot sin. So it seems like a being that could do anything could sin, and a morally perfect being cannot sin. Therefore, it's not possible that one and the same being simultaneously exist as omnipotent and morally perfect. That's a B-type argument. And then a C-type argument looks at um, the compatibility of one or more divine attributes together with a contingent fact about the world. So the problem of evil is the paradigmatic uh, C-type argument against the existence of God, right? But um, you, you would have to motivate a case for atheism with one of those kinds of an arguments, either an A-type, a B-type, or a C-type argument. And maybe you, uh, if, if you think you have one such argument that's really successful, um, maybe you could be epistemically justified in your atheism. Doesn't mean you're right about your atheism, just means that you have an epistemic justification for your atheism, right? But for, a, for anybody who's not so inclined, just to flat out say the existence of God is not even possible, then you have to say that the existence of God is possible, which means God exists at least one world. Uh, by the way, I've, I've switched here. This is a technical point, but earlier in our discussion, I, I was talking about God existing in worlds. Now I'm using uh, God existing at worlds. Uh, and I think that's really important because of some points that um, relate to the doctrine of divine transcendence and also to um, some points that were made by philosopher Robert Adams. Um, but uh, I, won't, I won't go into those right now. Um, the... The reason that this is important has to do with contingency. If anybody wants to say that God exists possibly but not necessarily, 
then you have to defend the idea that a maximally great being is contingent because that's just what that means. But any being that is contingent is contingent upon something. That's just what, what we mean by contingency on pains of violating what's called the principle of sufficient reason, right? And there are both strong and weak articulations of the principle of sufficient reason. Um, and, you know, for more work on that, you should go read Alex Proust's book on the principle of sufficient reason um, and also the work of um, my good friend Chad McIntosh, who um, appeals to the principle of sufficient reason significantly in uh, his uh, doctoral dissertation, which he just recently defended at Cornell University. But the principle of sufficient reason basically is the idea that everything has an explanation, right? right. So if God is contingent, then that can be explained. Well, um, any contingent thing needs to be explained. Necessary things might even need to be explained, but weak articulations of the principle of sufficient reason might allow for the existence of brute necessities. But brute contingencies, and where brute means unexplainable, something that exists contingently but not necessarily, and there's no explanation for that, uh, I find that deeply unsatisfying, right? There's got to be some reason why it exists, because to exist contingently is to exist in some kind of a dependence relation upon something else. Right. Uh, I, so, if, but it doesn't make sense to describe God that way, as God God exists contingently upon something else, because um, that doesn't seem to fit with any any relevant notion of what we mean by God. Right. I, I think one of the differences, or the way I understand the difference in what you're talking about, uh, in terms of contingency and necessity and explanations. I, I agree with the, the principle of sufficient reason if it's stated as everything has an explanation. I think God has an explanation as well. Even his necessary existence has an explanation. Um, but I think contingent things not only have explanations, but they have causes. I think uh, even if it's a hierarchical kind of cause, that a contingent thing must have a cause. And uh, yeah. a necessary thing being... Yeah. I don't think we'd want to say God has a cause. Right. You know? That's so this is, I think the difference is. Yeah. Very good. So so what caused God is a is an incoherent question. Um, so so you can use these kinds of um, appeals to things like the metaphysics of modality and the principle of sufficient reason to explain from the concept of a divine being why that being has to exist in all possible worlds and and not just at some possible worlds. Um, and it, it's not just my intuition that's saying it's better that way. It's, well, if it's not that way, then we need an explanation as to why God exists at only some worlds. And I don't think that any definition or any, any explanation of that can be given. Now, I will note that there are some important philosophers of religion who disagree with me here, right? Mm -hmm. uh, William Hasker disagrees. Richard Swinburne disagrees. Um, Tom Senor uh, thinks that there is one and only one world at which God does not exist. Um, so God is a is an almost necessary being. The only world that he thinks God does not exist in is a world of absolute nothingness. It's an empty set. Oh. Um, <laughs> But I think that there are reasons to wonder whether an empty set is really a thing. You know, right. maybe we would want to be um, nihilists about whether empty things are things. So, well, you know, 
think about um, think about holes, right? Suppose that you have some shirt or a sweater that you have in your closet, and you you pull it out and uh, find out that some moth ate a hole in the sweater. Is the hole a real thing, or is the hole an absence of a thing? Um, you know, some people like to privation. Yeah. Yeah. So um, if if an empty set is literally nothing, then you wonder if it is a thing or if it is a not thing. It's a no so, thing. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so very. Yeah. Go ahead. So um, so with this modal ontological argument that I've been offering, right? The idea is you start with the concept of God, and then you ask whether that concept of God is even possible. Now, in order for it to be possible, it has to be free of logical contradiction. So the apologist, the theist, has to respond to you know, A-type arguments or B-type arguments or C-type arguments, which all purport to be objections against the logical coherence of a divine being. Um, I think that those objections can be met. Um, Right. Eugen Nagasawa has proposed what he calls a more economical view of things, that instead of, instead of thinking that uh, a maximally great being entails omniperfection, which you know just take to be the conjunction of omnipotence and omnibenevolence and omniscience and uh, omnipresence and any of the other great-making attributes that you think have some maximal uh, place— uh, Eugen says, look, maybe, maybe one of these arguments against omnipotence, like the paradox of the stone, is a good argument. I mean, maybe it's not a good argument, but maybe it is a good argument. I don't even need to worry about whether or not it's a good argument. All I need to say is, God is whatever it's better to be than to not be on the upper edge of what's possible. So, Whatever maximal power is, if it's omnipotence, great, God is omnipotent. If it turns out that omnipotence is impossible, okay, then whatever the next step down that is in the realm of logical possibility, God is that thing, right? right. And, and what do I do about these uh, tricky ways of responding to puzzles about the compatibility of moral perfection and, and you know, divine power? Well, I don't know if that's a good argument against the compossibility of those things, Maybe it is a good argument against them, but maybe it's not. I don't even need to worry about responding to those arguments, though. All I need to say is that there's some combination of power and moral perfection or moral goodness. And whatever is like the greatest combination of those two things that is logically possible, well, God's that thing. And then if somebody says, well, that's not even logically possible, you're saying, no, 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 no. It might not be logically possible at the level of a 10 over here and a level of a 10 over here. But maybe there is a, a, there's no logical impossibility of a 10 over here and a 9.9999999 over here. Now there's no logical impossibility. Um, so whatever it is better to be that is within the domain of what is logically possible, God is that thing. And that is the upper end of the food chain and God sits at the top of that food chain. Now, I think that that is a really successful strategy for defending the possibility premise of a modal ontological argument, that possibly a maximally great being exists. It has to be true that there is some upper limit on what is possible. Um, maybe that upper limit is omniperfection. 
if it's not omniperfection, then there has to be some place from the top down where you enter from the domain of what is impossible into the domain of what is possible. So I think that that's going to get you a successful ontological argument, but it comes at a cost. And I'm, I'm, it will take us too far afield of our topic of discussion today um, to explore this. But I think that there's a possibility that if you, if you pursue that strategy too far, you may end up with the possible existence of more than one divine being. Right. And for those of us who are monotheists, we want to preserve the idea that there's one and only one maximally great being. So um, I've, I've got a paper that's out under review right now that is responding to Nagasawa, suggesting you know, we got to figure out a way to uphold not only our Anselmian intuitions about perfect being theology uh, and where that's actually possible, but in a way that does not make room for polytheism, right? Right. Okay. Well, thank you for spelling that out. Uh, real quick to the audience, I should have said this at the beginning. Obviously, I'm getting I'm new to going live. We do have some uh, questions in the in the queue there, but if you want to submit questions, be sure to tag me in them, and I, I tend to just address all the questions at the end of the interview, kind of like a Q and A. And so that's why I'm not answering them as we go along. Uh, just wanted to throw that out there. Again, I recognize probably should have said that up front. I'll do that from now on. But anyway, if you have a question, you can submit it by tagging uh, Help Me Believe in It. That way I can see it and you know distinguish it from other comments that are going on in there. Uh, by the way, uh, Ben, Cam, Cameron uh, Bertuzzi says hello from Capturing Christianity. I did see hey. that one in there. He told me to tell you hi. Uh, I, before we get to the Q&A, and then, of course, after the Q&A, we're going to go to the bonus segment, which is uh, five more minutes with Dr. Ben Arbor. It'll be over at our Patreon. You'll be able to find it over at our Patreon uh, website, which there's a link in the description to that if you want to follow the link and become a patron supporter. You'll have access to that as soon as I get it uploaded over there. And I want to take this time to say thank you to our patron supporters. Uh, so thanks so much for that. Uh, let's see, Ben. I got, before we get to the q and I got uh, maybe one more line of... Uh, questioning uh, to go through here. Uh, we've been sure. going for about an hour now, so I kind of want to start wrapping things up, but I do want to get to this. So do you believe that the sentence or the proposition, God does not exist, entails a contradiction? Yes, I do. This is where I differ from Richard Swinburne, um, because I understand the claim, God, to um, denote a being that exists of necessity. So to say there exists a being who, who exists of necessity, but there is a possible world where that being does not exist. Is well, that's a contradiction. Okay. Right? Uh, then my, my follow-up question, and this is just me, uh, it's not a problem that I have with ontological argument because I've never really thought about it, just to be honest. And so this sure. is, I'm, kind of, I'm trying to think through it. I'm perfectly happy if it's a successful arg argument. Obviously, I already believe in God. Um, well, hang so on, hang on. Just just a quick note about that. Sure. Um, you know, it's one thing to root for the success of arguments, but what we value is truth. Right. There are lots of bad arguments for God's existence. It, it might be that I'm mistaken, and ontological arguments are bad arguments for the existence of God. I don't find them to be bad arguments, but I don't want us just rooting for an argument for theism because we're theist and we want our position to be true. Yeah. We, we want the truth, whatever the truth is. Um, I'm persuaded that the truth is that God exists and that there are good reasons for believing that God exists and that ontological arguments in at least some forms give you good reasons to believe that. Yeah. Um, so just to clarify. Um, 
then then premise one, if you understand the word God to mean a necessary being, it seems to be loaded, and the conclusion seems to be assumed from the very first premise, because what the premise now says is it's possible that a necessary being exists. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So so the the chief premise is um, that it is possible that a necessary being exists. Um, but and and there are two issues here, right? One is why should we think that God is a necessary being? Right. Um, and I think that we have very good reasons to think that God is a necessary being because God could not be a contingent being because of uh, principles, sufficient reason concerns and just because of what we mean by God. The second question is, why should we think that it is possible that a necessary being exists? Now, here's where the the um, particular articulations of ontological arguments that I want to defend, here's where I differ. I don't understand um, the kinds of ontological arguments that I'm defending to be armchair proofs for the existence of God. So in a recent paper that I published, I um, asked people to consider Consider the following imaginary dialogue between uh, a theist and someone who's not a theist. Maybe they're agnostic. Maybe they're an atheist. I don't know. Doesn't matter. So uh, the the person who doesn't believe in God says, "I don't believe in God," and the theist says, "Why not?" And then the response is, "Well, because there's no good reasons to believe in God." And the theist says. What about all the arguments for God's existence? And the non-theist says, what arguments for God's existence? And then the theist responds like I would with, well, what about the ontological argument? And then the non-believer says, never heard of it. How does that argument go? And then I go, oh, oh, it's kind of simple. It's, well, if God exists, God would have a maximally great being. A maximally great being would exist at all possible worlds. That's just the definition of God. Now, I think it's possible that God exists. And when I say that it's possible that God exists, I, all I'm saying, I'm not saying anything about uh, all possible worlds. I'm only talking about one possible world, that there exists at least one possible world. And at that world, a maximally great being exists. I'm not making a claim about all possible worlds, just making a claim about one. But once I have made that claim, as it turns out, if a maximally great being exists in that one possible world, turns out, that being exists at all possible worlds. And if that being exists at all possible worlds, then it exists in this world. So that seems like a pretty good reason to believe in God. And then the non-believer goes, hmm, that is an interesting argument. I've never heard of that, never really thought about it, but I went on Google and found that there's like all these objections to modal art, uh, ontological arguments, and there's a lot of division as to whether or not they're ultimately successful. And it really seems like everything hinges on this possibility claim that possibly God exists. So what good reason do I have for thinking that it's possible for God to exist? And here's where I start to differ. I say, well, there are lots of reasons to think that possibly God exists. There's, oh, where to start? Uh, the Kalam cosmological argument. There's the Leibnizian cosmological argument. There's the argument from motion, the teleological argument, the argument from fine tuning. You have the moral argument, the argument from numbers, the argument from beauty. Um, while we're at it, let's go ahead and throw in the argument from so many arguments. Um, so, you know, and and look, there's two dozen or so arguments that Jerry Wall. Were you in that book? No, I did not. Oh, okay. I, I 
I was very privileged to be able to attend a conference where uh, a lot of the manuscripts were read and was able to provide some comments on some, but I am not a contributor to that book. Okay. Um, lots of my friends are, though, right? Yeah. Um, including uh, some people that I've already mentioned. Uh, Tyron Goldschmidt, his argument from Numbers is in there. Josh Rasmussen uh, is in there. Um, Brian Leftow is in there. William Lane Craig is in there. Alex Proust is in there. A lot of the superhero philosophers of religion. Um, and uh, when you consider all of those arguments uh, and you want to adopt some kind of a Bayesian framework for how we think about things and, and set a probability, whatever the prior probability of of the existence of God, whatever that prior probability is, is going to shape what you think the probability of possibly God exists is, okay? And then when you start with whatever Bayesian value you want to assign there, whatever probability to that, possibly God exists, and then you think through the long litany of arguments for God's existence, and after thinking about all those things, surely that's got to raise the probability that possibly God exists. We're not asking you to even raise the probability that God actually exists, but just that it's even possible that God exists. It's got to raise the credence. Yeah. And now, once you have that raised credence, then I want to say, now, uh, Mr. Non-Believer, in light of all those arguments, don't you think, like, maybe we have a good reason to suppose that possibly God exists? And then I think... Uh, the rational person is going to go, yeah, it does seem like it's at least possible that God exists. And then you go, okay. So in light of the fact that it's possible that God exists, we run back through our ontological argument, and it turns out that God exists of necessity. This is not an armchair proof because it relies on things like cosmological arguments, um, which are a posteriori uh, in our reasoning. So it's different. But it does provide a way of what I want to call the bookends of an argument from so many arguments. So we start and end with ontological arguments, and along the way we consider a whole lot of other arguments, including the argument from so many arguments that's defended by Ted um, Poston in, um, in the Two Dozen or So book. Yeah, I so, saw that argument in there. I don't have the book. I saw that argument in there and almost bought the book just for that. I, I probably yeah. will buy the book at some point, but... It's, it's a great volume and definitely worth having in your library. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of the way that yeah. I want to see this. So uh, the, the kinds of ontological arguments that I'm interested in defending are not merely a priori reasoning. Right. But I do think that rational people are going to have to come to the conclusion that it's silly to deny, um, it, it's silly to deny the possibility of God's existence unless you think you have a knockdown, drag-out argument that's either going to be an A type or a B type or a C type argument. But even there, you're going to have to respond to Eugen Nagasawa's reformulation of Anselmianism, which is designed to avoid the force of those arguments. So, yeah. Very good. Well, again, like I said, we're going to move into some Q&A here. We have a few questions in the queue. Um, and then we're going to go uh, to the bonus segment again. If you want to watch the bonus segment, you can follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a patron supporter to get access to not only uh, today's uh, bonus segment, but all the bonus segments of all my interviews and all the future interviews as well. Uh, so first question comes from Spartan Theology. Uh, it says, question, I struggle to understand how we can say that all these qualities 
I'm guessing those qualities which you're attributing to God, that they all come together and don't just necessarily exist separately. Uh, I, I suppose the question is, how do you know there's not a being which is omnipotent, there's a being which is omnibenevolent, there's a being which is omniscient, why does it have to be one unity? Yeah, so um, some of this has to do with uh, some of our intuitions about value theory, right? Um, uh, take three beings, right? One that's all loving, another one that's all powerful, and another one that is uh, all knowing. But each of these three beings don't have any of those other properties, right? So the all powerful being doesn't know anything and, and has no moral essence. The all-loving being is full of love, but no power and no knowledge. Um, and the all-knowing being uh, has no power and, and no, no moral essence. It seems just obvious to me that a being that is all-powerful and all-knowing is superior to any of those others. Um, and it seems also obvious to me that a being that is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving is superior to any of the beings that we've been discussing so far. So as we're talking about the being than which none greater can be, or on Anselm's terms, the being than which none greater can be conceived, it's just clear to me that um, the maximally great being would have to have all perfections um, at one time. Now, there's a, a philosopher turned attorney named uh, Cesar Bernstein who published uh, a couple of pages, a couple of different articles on ontological arguments, and he argues for the compossibility of all perfections, saying that anything that is a perfection has to be compossible with all other perfections. So I don't think we have any good reason to think of these things as separate, um, number one. But this is controversial. I'm a classical theist, so I defend um, something like a doctrine of divine simplicity, whereupon there's just this one divine essence right. and it, it you know it is not that god's power can be separated from god's knowledge or god's um moral perfections as though god were made of parts and we can carve him up uh it, it, god is not like us in that respect so um i, I might have some other metaphysics in the background that is going to help make sense of that right it shouldn't but be that's controversial be though Divine simplicity yeah. should not be a problem for evangelicals. I don't know why they always act like it is. Theistic personalism is something that is new. It's not, yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. But uh, I, I uh, study philosophy at Southern Evangelical Seminary, which is broadly Thomistic. And so that's going to be that's true. classical theistic as well. So I'm that's on board true. with you as an evangelical. I, I agree with divine simplicity as well. Uh, let's see. Uh, are you still there? My Skype is doing that thing again. Let's wait a second. I think it'll come back like it did earlier. There you are. Yeah. All right. Sorry about okay. that. Let's, uh, I got some other questions. No problem. This one, yeah, this one's for me. Hayden, did you switch to OBS instead of Ecamm Live? No, I'm still using Ecamm Live. Um, I could not figure out OBS to save my life, even though it was it's the free uh, service that you can go live with and stuff. I don't know how to do that. Uh, let's see. Uh, I already told you, uh, Cameron from Capturing Christianity says hello. Tell Ben I said hi. I did. You're welcome. Uh, let's see. This person says they like Homer Simpson's version better. Can God microwave a burrito so hot he cannot eat it? 
<laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's better than the paradox of the stone. <laughs> so Crash Course Apologetics, who asked me the question about uh, what a um, software I was using, also asks, what does uh, Ben think of Tyron Goldschmidt's objections to the ontological argument? I don't know if you're are you familiar with who that is. Yeah, so um, Tyron and I talk quite a bit, and um, I, I would recommend to all of your listeners, he has a, a book coming out on ontological arguments with Cambridge University Press, and it's very good. I've uh, been able to look at the manuscript. Um, it, it's a fantastic introduction, and, and it's I say introduction, but it's, it's rigorous but accessible, so you don't have to have a super super thick background in analytic metaphysics in order to understand what he's up to there. And it's, it's going to be a really, really nice volume as soon as it comes out. Um, some of my comments to Tyron have him wondering. So uh, I don't want to speak for him. Maybe you could get him on here some other time. Uh, and and I'd be glad to, to recommend you to him. But Tyron is convinced that armchair proofs against the existence of God aren't going to work. But in the way that I want ontological arguments to fit into a broader cumulative case for theism, where the possibility premise could be motivated by a posteriori reasoning, he's he's persuaded that that, um, that, that could work. But he also would push back and say, that's not an ontological argument because it's not relying solely on a priori reasoning. And I'll say fine, but I mean, I don't, I don't have any dog in the hunt of whether or not a argument solely relying on a priori reasoning. Like it doesn't bother me that the argument of an ontological style that I'm interested in makes use of a posteriori reasoning along the way. Um, but Tyron's other arguments against certain versions of ontological arguments, um, a lot of them are really good. Uh, at one point, he does kind of say, if you want to be Minongian about your philosophy of language and the way and your ontology of um, you know non-existent objects, then you're going to be able to have a leg up on people who reject Minongianism. And I confess that for the last couple of months, I've been very attracted to Minongianism, which I know is exceedingly controversial. Um, and I'm, uh, although I would say right now I'm attracted to it, I'm not prepared to defend it because I'm just now beginning to explore it in more detail and some of its entailments. So although right now I'm attracted to it, six months from now, I'm, I might be the biggest, Minong got everything wrong. <laughs> so I don't know. But but right now I'm attracted to it, so yeah. Uh, this one doesn't really have to do with the ontological argument, so if you don't want to answer, it's perfectly fine. Uh, let's see, Jaffrey. I'm sorry, I can't pronounce your last name. It, it, perhaps it's Indicio. Sorry. Uh, it says uh, Dr. Alex Malpass argues that God, who is timeless, cannot perform an action which requires time to exist. So this is akin to a married bachelor, which is contradictory. Do you agree? If not, why? So I think the question is, how can God act if he's outside of time? It seems like time is a necessary condition of action in general. Yeah, so um, I'm going to want to appeal to the Christian tradition here and say that 
um, timeless actions can produce tensed effects uh, without themselves requiring that the action be temporal. Right. Um, I, I know that there are people who find that controversial, uh, many theistic personalists, but I think that there are adequate resources in Thomistic metaphysics to respond to that. Um, you know, and I, look, I know there's a lot of smart people who disagree with me there. Yeah. But yeah, it's I'm, a big I'm, subject, but I think you're right yeah. that the answer basically is all that's required. Um, and this is why I find Aristotle's distinction between act and potency so helpful. Is right. That it seems that all that it's required in order to cause something is that it be in act. Uh, something cannot move from potential to actuality unless it's in act, unless it's caused by something which is in act. Um, and it seems to me that all that's required in order to cause something is to be in act. He doesn't have to move from potency to act. He just has to be in act. And the classical conception of God is that he is pure actuality. And so, of course, he can cause. He can't be acted upon because he has no potency, but he can right. certainly create because he's already always and always, always has been in act and always will be in act. But. So this, this is really important um, and would take us too far afield of ontological arguments to, to think about the divine nature, but the act potency distinction that we see in Aristotle and, and appropriated by Aquinas does seem to provide a lot of room, not only for um, the doctrine of divine simplicity, but also things that seem to fall out of that, like impassibility, divine timelessness, and therefore immutability, um, omnipotence, omniscience, omniperfection, omnipresence, like that whole package, all of it is, is what I think is true um, of, of the divine being. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, so yeah, there, I would just point to Thomism as <laughs> my response. <laughs> yeah, they have a good yeah. response. Uh, and particularly, and this is a final comment here. This is why I like the classical arguments for the existence of God. I don't dislike the Kalam cosmological argument or the moral argue, argument or anything like that, but I much prefer the classical arguments for the existence of God because their conclusions entail a being which is omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, whereas defenders of these more modern arguments like Dr. William Lane Craig, they end up with like a, a really good being or a really powerful be being or a, <laughs> a, a really smart, or I don't know. It's just like, it's like a, a human, but better. Whereas the classical yeah. argument. Well, at, at least with respect to the moral argument, um, I think that whatever the moral argument gets you is probably a morally perfect being who exists of necessity. And um, whatever the Kalam argument gets you, gets you a personal being that exists of necessity and must be incredibly powerful and incredibly smart. It might not get you omnipowerful or omni-knowing, mm -hmm. but it does get you a necessarily existent being and a necessarily existent being that's personal. So maybe what all of these arguments are giving us is like one puzzle piece that fits here and another puzzle piece that fits there and all of them together get you um, the, the picture. I mean, like, yeah. the argument from the resurrection of Jesus is pretty important for me. So, um, you know... That, that, at least if what we're trying to put on the table here is not just 
some generic theism, but a distinctly Christian theism. Yeah. Um, you know, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is pretty central to yeah. uh, my understanding of who God is. So Certainly. Well, again, I appreciate it a lot, uh, Dr. Arbor, or Ben, sorry. Uh, thanks so much for uh, taking time out of your day to do this. Again, to the audience, thanks for joining us. Thanks for your questions. Uh, sorry if we didn't answer all the questions. Simply don't have time for all the questions. But, uh, if, again, if you want to watch the bonus segment, you can follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a supporter of the show. Thanks so much for those uh, who are, and thanks so much for those who aren't, but like the videos, share them, and all that. That goes a long way as well. So thanks so much. Uh, again, Ben, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, I really appreciate it, sir. Glad to be here. Really fun time. Thank you.